Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. In Acts chapter 2, we hear the story of the first Pentecost the first coming of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound, like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered. Because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today continues talking about speaking in tongues. This is from... Paul's first letter to Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 4 to 5 and 18 to 25. Paul says, Those who speak in a tongue build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the church. Now, I would like all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, be infants in evil, but in thinking be adults. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips, by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Yet, even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? The word of the Lord. We've been doing our sermon series, Church and State, the rise of early Christianity, and we've been exploring 
the history of the early church, the documents that we find in the New Testament. This series is broken into three, four different parts, I guess. I should know, I wrote it. So, (laughs) (laughs) the first part deals with the formation of the early church from 30 to 70 AD. And last week, uh, if you were here, I gave you a handout. Do any of you still have that handout? Did you all throw it away when I was, when you were done with it? Okay. Oh, you still got it. Good. Thanks, Ellen. So, last week, I talked about how, with this handout, this handout had two columns. One column had all of the books in the New Testament in the order in which we find them. The other column had the books of the New Testament in the order in which they were written. And we talked about 1 Thessalonians, which is the earliest book we have in the New Testament. When was it written, according to your piece of paper? 51 AD. So that's about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And what this tells us is it gives us an insight, a window into the early church and how Paul was motivating people to become part of Jesus' movement. And so one of the ways that Paul was doing this is that he was telling people that Jesus was going to return any day now. And so he was trying to tell them that if you don't believe in Jesus, then there's going to be some major consequences for your lives when Jesus returns. So these people, they were believing in Jesus because they thought that belief was going to have an immediate payoff. And the people who were part of that church in Thessalonica, they fervently believed that the end of the world was going to come anytime, anytime. So we move on to another way today that Paul was gaining converts because it wasn't just through telling people that the world was going to end. He also was able to elicit converts through the act of speaking in tongues. Now, the act of speaking in tongues, this phenomena, is something that we read in our two scriptures for today. And I think it raises some interesting questions for us because as a Christian church who believes in Jesus but yet does not speak in tongues, I think we have to ask ourselves, what role should speaking in tongues play in our walk as Christians in the 21st century? So that is the question we're going to be exploring this morning. You good with me on that? Okay. So to begin this, I would like to start with Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. So Corinth is located right there in Greece. And we actually, we're talking about Thessalonica, which is higher up, further north, last week in Macedon, but down there in Greece is where Corinth is located. And if we zoom in on Corinth, what we can see is that what makes Corinth special is the fact that there are two gulfs on either side of it. And so this made it an ideal place for trading in the ancient world because ships could come in from both the east and the west to drop off all of their goods. And classical Corinth, 500, 400 BC, That time, Corinth was extraordinarily wealthy. It was a place where people would go all the time because they had this very famous black-figured pottery that people would come and try to get a hold of. But the other reason why they would come to Corinth is because they had the temple to Aphrodite there, the goddess of love. Now this, this tetrapylon, that is actually a portico. That's not even the actual temple. That is the way that you would get onto the road that led up to this temple. That's how fancy this place was. Like, this was a big deal in Corinth. And at its height, 
this temple to Aphrodite, it employed more than a thousand hatairai. Hatairai, those are roughly translated temple prostitutes. But these are not prostitutes in the way that we think of prostitutes who work today. These were women from upper class families. They were extraordinarily educated and their services were usually out of the reach of the average person. You had to be a wealthy business person, you had to be a merchant, you had to come from a plutocratic family to be able to afford the services that they were offering. And so you just have to realize this was a place of extreme social and economic activity. And so Paul thought to himself, this seems like a pretty good place to start a church. So he comes in and he begins his church in Corinth much in the same way that he began his church in Thessalonica. He would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is what day? Saturday. Saturday. He'd preach about Jesus and he'd get a few people to come with him. And then they, on Sunday mornings, which is why we have our services on Sunday mornings, they would gather together in the little house church and worship Jesus before they went on with their days. Now, from what we can tell based on 1 Corinthians, the church that he developed there in Corinth was extraordinarily diverse. It's the blueprint for what a lot of churches strive to be. So there were people from all different types of classes. There were wealthy and poor. There were educated and non-educated. And even more interesting, there were slave and free who were part of this church, all worshiping together at the same time. So Paul forms this church. Everybody comes together, all this great diversity. But of course, what comes along with diversity? Usually there are problems, right? Because what happens is people try to find their own, people who are like themselves. And so this diverse group of people started breaking off into factions. And these factions, according to the letter we read, were vying for power in the church. And one of the ways they were doing this was through the act of speaking in tongues. How many people in here have ever seen someone speaking in tongues before? How many people have seen it? Okay. If you've never seen it before, it's a rather strange thing to witness. People look as though they're out of their minds. They are speaking in an unintelligible language, usually what we would call babble, which is coming out of their mouths. They will shake, fall over, sometimes convulse. They can seem like they're in a trance-like state where they're not present to what's going on. I'm going to show you a clip of somebody speaking in tongues. And I want you to know that I chose one intentionally that is not scary because generally speaking, when people speak in tongues, it can be pretty scary. So let's watch this. It's very short, but it'll give you a sense of what this is about. Now, I'm sure that's what you all hear generally when I'm speaking to you guys, right? <laughs> That's how it sounds when it's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> so the first time that this supposedly happens is on the day of Pentecost, which Judy was reading to us, and that's in the book of Acts. Pentecost, for those of you who don't know, is actually a Jewish holiday. Penta meeting 50 is 50 days after the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, and it's the day on which Moses receives the law from God. And so that's why they would celebrate. That was what Pentecost was about. So the disciples, they're all gathered together and they're in this upper room. And all of a sudden, it says that a rush, like the sound of a violent wind comes through 
and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they can all speak different languages or different tongues. Now, what's so fascinating about Luke's version of this is that the way he describes speaking in tongues is very different from the way that we saw speaking in tongues in that video just a second ago. So the way he talks about speaking in tongues is that it's actual spoken languages like Egyptian, Parthian, Arabic, like all this stuff that people were actually speaking real languages, whereas Paul, he's more talking about something different, right? Babel. And so the question is, why does this discrepancy exist? Why is it that we have Luke who's saying that when you speak in tongues, you speak in actual spoken languages, whereas Paul seems to be talking about Babel? Well, modern Christians, Pentecostals, who get their name from Pentecost, right? They will tell you that actually that both can be possible. They will say, well, sometimes people speak in Babel. Other times they will speak in spoken languages they've never learned before. Having been to a number of Pentecostal churches in my time, I can tell you that I've heard a lot of people speaking in Babel. Never once have I heard someone speaking in a language they didn't know. And so for me personally, I tend to agree with scholars who have suggested that when Luke was writing this episode in Acts, he had never actually heard people speaking in tongues before. He never actually witnessed this. He had only kind of heard through the grapevine that this is something that happened in Paul's churches. And when he saw the word tongues, well, the word tongue in Greek simply means language. So he thought, oh, they're speaking in different languages, actual spoken languages. Whereas when you look at Paul's letters, it's quite clear that they are speaking in Babel. Let's see what Paul has to say about this. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Sounds like Babel to me, doesn't it? Sounds like what we saw in that video. Now Paul he starts to dig a little bit deeper, and he elaborates on this, saying that if you have somebody who's speaking in tongues in the church, it's very important that you have somebody there who can interpret what those tongues mean. Now, the reason why you need an interpreter is because Paul had spoken to the people in his church, and he had said, look, when you're speaking in tongues, when this babble is coming out of your mouth, that's from God. That's God speaking through you. And so this is why there are people in the Corinthian church who are sitting there and saying, by speaking in tongues, I should have authority over you. Because this is the way it goes, right? The more I speak in tongues, the more Jesus is close to me in my heart, the more the Holy Spirit is there, the more God is linked up with me, the more you should listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. You follow that train of logic? Kind of how it goes? Okay. So Paul, he tries to get them into a position where they're, set, where they're not so focused on speaking in tongues. He, he tries to get them out of this predicament. This is what he says. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So here, it almost seems like he's trying to say, tongues don't really matter, do they? Now, why is he saying this? He's saying this because what you have to appreciate is that Paul used speaking in tongues as a conversion tactic. It was the way he convinced people to believe in Jesus. So, 
What was happening is he goes into these churches and people start speaking in tongues. And he says, look, the fact that you're speaking in tongues, that is evidence that God is with you. And it's also evidence that what I'm saying is real and true. But then Paul leaves, he goes off and he's starting other churches. And the people in the church, they are using his own conversion tactic in order to say why they should be in control of the church and why they should have power and authority over everybody else. Are you with me so far? You are? Yes. Are you with me? Yes. Uh, they're with me. I don't think you guys are. You guys aren't giving me anything. I'm going to try to preach to them from now. <laughs> no. Here's the thing. What you have to appreciate, and the reason why this little bit of history is so important, is that what most Christians don't realize is that speaking in tongues is not original to the Christian faith. At the time that this was happening, there were mystery cults all over the Mediterranean where people were speaking in tongues. You see, what people believed in the Greco-Roman world is that when you were in one of these places worshiping, right, is that the gods spoke different languages, different from what we would speak, and that if they wanted to, they could choose a human as a vessel, as an instrument through which the gods could send messages from the divine world. And so long before Paul is establishing his churches out there in the Mediterranean, there are all these people in the Greco-Roman world who are going to these mystery cults. And they go there specifically with the intention of speaking in tongues. And there are priests who are part of these mystery cults. And these priests, they would interpret the babble that was coming out of their mouths and giving them prophecies about their lives. You can see this referenced in the dialogues by Plato from the 5th century B.C. And you can also see it referenced from Virgil's Aeneid in the 1st century B.C. Now Paul, he was aware that these mystery cults existed. It's not like he didn't know they were there. He knew they existed. And so what he knew also is that these mystery cults, they had influenced the thinking of the people he was trying to convert. Now hear me on this, because if you don't hear this, you're not going to understand anything that I'm saying. He knew that if you wanted your religion to have legitimacy in the ancient world, that your God had to speak through you. And that is why speaking in tongues was so important in Paul's churches. It was so critical in Paul's churches that people spoke in tongues because it lended legitimacy and credence to him as a prophet. And then it also lended legitimacy and credence to the message he was throwing out that Jesus was going to come back any day now. Now, knowing this, it also helps us to understand why Jesus never once talks about speaking in tongues in any of the gospels. He never brings it up. Never talks about it, ever. And the reason why is because speaking in tongues was not part of the Jewish tradition. So Paul, he adapted speaking in tongues for his version of Christianity. Because he knew that without it, his churches could not survive. And this brings me to the main point of my sermon for today which is that Christianity, at its core, has always been a religion of adaptation. 
So speaking in tongues was not original to Jesus' movement, but it became part of Jesus' movement when Paul deemed it necessary to make the church relevant to the people he was trying to convert. And this has been happening for centuries. That happened at the very beginning, and it's been going on for centuries. So many people want to believe that the church is an exact replica of what Jesus wanted it to be from the beginning. But the church has been adapting to fit the audience it's been trying to sway for centuries. Do you want another example of this, one that you all will actually know, which is Christmas and Easter? Okay, so what happens is, we're going to talk about this in July at the end of this sermon series, but basically the Roman Empire becomes Christian. It gets converted overnight to Christianity. So all of a sudden, all these people who worship these pagan gods and goddesses, they are now Christians, whether they like it or not. And so the church leaders, they're sitting there and they're trying to figure out, how do we help these people wrap their minds around this Jesus guy? So what they do is they look at the two religions and they realize that there are some areas of parallelism and confluence. One area has to do with Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. And they realize that these two celebrations match up really, really well with the pagan celebration of the winter solstice and the pagan festival of the spring equinox, which is when we celebrate Christmas and Easter to this day. So was that original to Jesus' movement? Did they celebrate Christmas and Easter on the spring <laughs> the spring equinox and the winter solstice? No, they didn't do that. But the fact is they adapted it because they needed to do that for the people of the time. And the same thing has been going on even to this day. Let's take a look at our version of Christianity, what we're doing here in this church. So, our version of Christianity, it's a reflection of the sentiments and lifestyles of middle-class, suburban, and I don't mean any offense to anybody who's not this way, but it's generally white people, okay? That is generally what we are here doing. And you all, because you tend to be educated, you tend to be reserved, and you tend also to not like a lot of flashiness in your service. All of that is a reflection of what's going on in here. Would you agree? Yes, it is. Okay? Now, you all would not feel comfortable in a church where people are speaking in tongues, handling snakes, and talking about the end of the world. We can bring that in here if you all want to, but I have a feeling you all aren't going to feel real good about it. The fact that most of the people who come here are the things that I just talked about that that is a sign to me that we have adapted this to fit your particular lifestyle and that you feel comfortable here and so the whole point of me saying this to you is just to point out for a moment that Christianity as a religion it's always been adapting to fit the times and the audience in which it finds itself Christianity is kind of like the cockroach of religions I mean to be perfectly honest with you it's like you can starve it, drown it, you can suffocate it, you can throw radiation at it, you can stomp on it. It's always going to be here. So what this tells us is that Christianity as a religion, it's always going to be around. What you have to appreciate is that our version of Christianity may not survive. 
And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is what type of adaptations do we need to make as a church to ensure that we're staying relevant to our audience? And this is a really tricky conversation to have. Because the moment you start talking about adaptation, that's the same moment that you have to start talking about traditions and whether or not those traditions are relevant any longer. Because you all know the world keeps moving forward and traditions by their very nature are designed to keep us grounded, linking us to the past. Now, I think I need to say up front that I don't think that traditions in and of themselves are necessarily bad things. So let's take one tradition that I think should never go away, and that is the Lord's Supper. Very important. I think that should be around no matter what. And the reason why is because it speaks to the best of who we are as Christians. Because think about what we do. The way it works is that we come up, we have a meal together, we set aside all of our differences, and we come together under the umbrella of God's love, and we're unified under that love. It's a beautiful ceremony. Ceremony that's so important to who we are as Christians. I hope we never get rid of it. But there are other traditions that are holding us back in our current cultural environment. One example of this would be creeds, statements of faith. So you all know creeds, right? Same in this service every single week. So here's an example of one creed we say all the time. Apostles' Creed. Say it very, very often, right? Now what is a creed? A creed is a statement of Christian belief. We say it together because we stand up and we say whatever disagreements we might have, this is the core belief of what we have. This is exactly what we all believe together. But I have the distinct feeling that if I went around the room and I talked to each of you individually, and we went through this line by line, most of you in here would have some problems with the stuff that's written in that text. In fact, even beyond that, I have, I'm pretty sure that many of you would disagree not just with a little bit, but with a lot of it. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we okay with people having different beliefs and not having kind of a core belief system that we all say, well, this is what we go to? Or are we going to sit there and we, are we going to say, no, you need to believe these things, and if you don't, you can't be part of us? Because if you're going to go down that road, that's kind of tricky in the 21st century, isn't it? Because in the 21st century, people feel like they can believe whatever they want to believe. And they don't feel compelled to be part of a single way of thinking, to conform to a single way of thought. So the question we have to answer is, are we as a church willing to adapt to our present environment? Are we willing to think differently about God, Jesus, and the church? Or do we sit here and we say, no, we have certain traditions that are very important to us and we're not going to let go of those things. And I want you to realize that in saying this to you, I'm not, I don't, I'm not judging anybody. I'm not, the, I'm not the person who makes this decision either. This is not the decision that the pastor makes and says, you all are coming with me. This is a decision that you all have to make as a community together. I'm just giving you the picture of the future and where the future is going. It's your choice whether you want to adapt to that future or not. And so you all might get together as a community and you might make a decision that no, actually, we like the way things are. We don't want to change. We want to be exactly how we've always been. 
And that's totally fine. That's not a problem. I will walk with you down that road if that's the way you want to go. You do have to realize that the consequence of that is that more than likely we will end up closing our doors in the future. But if that's the way you want to go, that's okay because that's a decision that you all can make together. Or you can make a decision that we're going to be different. We're going to think about things differently. We're going to do things differently. But if we're going to make that decision, we have to make it together. And everybody's got to be on the same page because you know what happens, right? You start doing different and different people come into the church and different people have different ideas. And they say, hey, why don't we try doing it this way? And of course, you know what happens. People say, oh, well, hold on a second. We've never done it that way before. And that doesn't work. Because if you're going to say we're going to be different, you've got to go all the way with different. Because you don't want those people to come here and say, well, I thought I was welcome here, and clearly I'm not. And remember, let me emphasize, this is your decision to make, not mine, yours. So I want to end this morning by saying that the church has always been a chameleon. From day one, the church has always been changing and adapting to fit the environment in which it finds itself. That's why Paul's churches spoke in tongues and why our church will never speak in tongues. And we, we will have to do some adapting if we want to survive. Otherwise, Christianity is going to move on without us. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you all would begin having conversations with each other about this. So maybe it's when you all get together for choir. Maybe it's when you come together for family night. Maybe it's when you have a small group with PW. Maybe it's a Bible study that you have. Maybe it's when you're doing brewing group or when you're biking. Whatever it is that you do when you get together with people here. I think you all need to be having discussions about what you all want to do. Because I'm going to be leading a much larger discussion on this later in 2018. Where we're going to come together as a community and we're going to talk about this. But you all have to be the ones who make the decision, not me. And I want you to know and hear this, because this is really important, that regardless of what you choose, whether you say we're going to stay as we are or we're going to change and be different, God's going to be with you regardless. God will love you no matter what, and God's not going to abandon you. But it has to be true to who you are and what you all want to do. So I want you to just remember, the future is right out there in front of us. And we can choose to remain as we are, or we can choose to adapt to the future that is coming our way. It's your choice. You just need to tell me what you want to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.